Our job as resilience professionals can be difficult. Between the ever-changing threat landscape, the increasing reliance on technology, and the constant need to keep stakeholders engaged, the last thing we need is for our leadership team to have a check-the-box mentality. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 112 of the Resilient Journey podcast presented by the Resilience Think Tank. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this week I'm joined by Resilience Thought Leader and founding member of the Resilience Think Tank, Jason Haas. Jason and I discuss the challenges that resilience professionals might face when working for an organization that has a check-the-box approach to business continuity. Jason tells me that every day he wakes up to find another reason we should be investing in resilience. He explains that checking the box doesn't do anything except give you a false sense of security. And I ask Jason, is this about money or something else? Jason, welcome to the podcast. This will be fun. Uh, let's start off by having you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background in resilience. Sure. Well, first and foremost, thank you, Mark, for having me on your, your uh, podcast today. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, longtime uh, listener, first time on it, uh, and uh, looking forward to this great conversation. I am a... Uh, business continuity professional with about 10 years of experience. Uh, but before this, I was a professional photographer for 15-ish years before that, uh, specializing in mass photography, teams, individuals, school pictures, all those wonderful disposable products that go into the drawers, but uh, are so important to uh, my organization when I had it. Uh, that's what my degree's in. That's my entire background. And that's what makes me uh, the resilient person I am today. That is so, really Thank you. I didn't know that. That's uh, that's fascinating. The other thing I wanted to welcome you to is uh, welcome to the Resilience Think Tank. Uh, you recently joined us as a founding member, and uh, we're glad to have you. What was it about the Resilience Think Tank that made you want to be part of what we got going on? I've been in search for a professional group of like-minded uh, professionals to bounce ideas off, to have safe places to talk about things like, oh, the BIA is dead, which I love stirring that hornet's nest, um, or, or things like that. And I've listened and looked at what the resilience think tank is, what makes it up, who makes that up, and uh, how it has enabled me in my profession in the short time that I've been familiar with it. And when the opportunity arose to become a member of it, I jumped. It simply was an organization that I want to be hitched with, that I believe in, and that is a great place to develop thought leadership and to discuss the challenges and opportunities we have in our day-to-day. -day. Nothing within our resilience profession really echoes what the Resilience Think Tank does. DRJ does its own thing. DRII does their own. The BCI does their own. All these other, uh, you know, organizations that do certifications and whatnot have their own spin on things, but nobody really talks about resilience and the adjacent topics like resilience think tank does, whether it's professional development, um, you know, thought provoking conversations around the things of resilience or different ways to gain buy-in with leadership, just different conversations that I'm not really seeing elsewhere. And I really, really wanted to be a part of that. So I appreciate the resilience think tank and the members for having me as a founding member. Well, yeah, we're glad to have you. And I'm looking forward to some of the collaboration and some of the conversations that we're going to have as we get into 2024. And you know what? I, I think what excites me the most about that is we don't exactly know what that's going to be yet. 
I'm going to call you up one day and say, hey, do you want to do such and such? And you're going to say yes. And then we're going to go have fun doing some kind of collaborative project. And and I just can't wait. And that's part of the exciting thing uh, with Resilience Think Tank. I look at it as it's a big, beautiful ball of clay that we can mold into whatever we want it to be. And I'm so excited by that. I'm looking forward to those conversations. In fact, I challenge you to get me to say no. I'm not a firm believer in it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I had a, a boss a long time ago who owned a consulting company and his slogan was the answer is yes. What's your question? And, and I really like that. I really right? do. All right. You know what? We're going to talk about something difficult today. We're going to talk about organizations who only want to check the box, right? They go through maybe some motions just for compliance or for whatever their motivation is but they have no interest in investing in resilience. And frankly, it's kind of hard to believe that this exists in in this day and age, but it does. So for our colleagues who might work for an organization that maybe is hesitant to allocate resources, what's the approach? What can be done to, I don't know, maybe demonstrate some kind of a tangible evidence to that organization that this is something they should be investing in? Fair question. And I look at it uh, through a couple different lenses. If we're looking at it from a simply monetary standpoint, you know, a great way to counter an organization that is being thrifty or cheap, um, we can always make more money. Can you restart a new business? Can you rehire all the team members? Can we put the C-suite back together? What about that, you know, board of uh, directors? What does that look like? And, you know, Can you survive maybe the fiscal implications of not being compliant with certain guiding laws, whether you're in fintech or whatever the regulated environment looks like? So, you know, if it's just simply about money, there are ways around that. We can always earn more money. That that is one thing that I've uh, learned throughout my life. But, you know, I can't rebuild families. I can't rebuild organizations easily. Being a former business owner myself is, you know, we planned for catastrophic events. This was before I knew what business continuity was. It just felt like the right thing to do. Mm. Um, You know, we planned for massive data loss, you know, with my background in, you know, photographing school pictures, sports teams, individuals, weddings. Some of these are a one-off opportunity. And if you miss the mark on it, you're going to get litigated. And you're going to ruin your reputation and all these other things. So just like in photography, always planning for that failure, planning for that adversity, planning for lack of budget from the clients who still want, you know, that dog and pony show desperately. So we work with identifying leaderships, find that champion, you know, building relationships and leveraging them is what continuity for me is all about. We need to make sure you're identifying that correct stakeholder within your organization How are they viewed to the board of directors? But the the main thing is, you know, tying this to something that, you know, your leadership is connected to. So how can you make this and frame it towards a business problem? And how are you going to solve for that? Executives want that. They don't want just yet another thing, another department to stand up, another full-time employee to pay for and benefits and all of that. They want competency. They want strategy. They kind of want resilience. So making sure you're framing your conversation correctly with your with your stakeholders that that is absolutely crucial you're talking about the hesitancy to spend money is it always about money or is it about awareness depends on the organization 
um, with, with some of the organizations I've partnered with, some of it has been about awareness as, and that's a lot of work. You're going to, you know, go be disruptive and we're going to have to do risk analysis and BIAs and create plans and tabletop exercises. And you're going to do this every year. That's way too much time. I we see. don't have that time. Well, you do. You just don't realize it. Either we take the time out now or we take it out when we're in crisis. We can either be proactive or reactive. One of the things that you said there too was they don't want to stand up a full-time employee. Now, I know you're a full-time employee and I'm I'm a consultant, I'm a contractor. So I'm going to just talk like a contractor for a minute. And I want to speak for just 30 seconds to my colleagues, the Shane Matthews, the James Greens, the Alexandra Hoffman's, the other people that are in that same kind of a situation and say, that's our bread and butter. For people who say, I don't want to spend, I'm just going to pick a number, $140,000 a year on a business continuity professional. I don't know if that's a good number or not. But we would say to you, well, you don't have to. You can bring us in on a resilience as a service kind of a thing. And for a fraction of that, we'll give you some services. So there are ways around this. What do you find is a better approach, though? Is it trying to figure out ways around what their objections are, or does it ever work to identify the potential disadvantages that they could be facing? Like, you know, extended downtime and reputational damage and things like that. Where do you focus here when you're trying to convince an organization to spend some money? Yeah. And depending on the organization, that conversation looks differently. For public education, it was about meeting, you know, societal obligations to educating students, as well as federal regulations, even though business continuity in K-12 wasn't regulated, there are certain parts of the educational process that is. When we deal with our special needs students who are on IEPs, individualized educational plans, there's real timelines and legal repercussions around that. So for like public education, let's say a transportation hub had a fire and they lost a lot of their specialized equipment in uh, securing and transporting uh, special education students and they couldn't get to school because of that, that's an issue. Now that district's going to be fined liable for that if it gets brought into you know litigation and uh, the feds will lean in and be really hard on that. And potentially what that penalty is for, you know, one, that student needs to have educational services made up for whatever they missed. There's going to be financial penalties, maybe a resume generating event for somebody. And, uh, you know, you add all of that up, there's a good chance that you've probably met the requirement for your full-time employee. Um, For other organizations, it could just be other priorities. You know, part of continuity is competing priorities. And sometimes we're the competing priority. Uh, you know, I want to build a tech stack trying to do this out of, you know, Microsoft Word and Excel and hand rolling business continuity isn't always pretty, but it's a great way to learn the profession and how things are, are are done by hand. And then when you get into your technology stack, you have a lot more appreciation for it. But, you know, sometimes there's just the lack of wanting to buy in where, you know, business resilience, ooh, it's this new shiny term. Let's go ahead and throw that figurehead on there like a hood ornament on a Cadillac. Looks great driving down the street. Everyone's oohing and on, thinking you got money and capability, and you don't because there was no investment beyond the full-time employee. So it looks different for every organization, and every organization has their own 
reasoning behind that. Uh, for K-12, it's inherently an underfunded system. I can make excuses for them all day long. You know, I even dug down into grant programs. Maybe the feds can help me. Maybe a state grant could help me. Maybe a community, you know, organization could help fund some of the initiatives. Or maybe some of the organizations, um, you know, that I partner with around it, whether it's resilient software or mass messaging, maybe they can assist with that. But when you move into private, well-funded organizations, it's just different. With some organizations I work with, some just are constantly in crisis mode. And, you know, if that that's an organizational decision on that. But, you know, it's that competing priority to get that face time with leadership, to convince them that to get out of crisis mode, investments must be made, that we must pivot somehow, that we must rip that Band-Aid off and do the work. Do you find that it's helpful to pick a threat like cyber or something like that to get the attention of an executive? Yeah, it helps. I mean, with uh, my organizations, I've had tornadoes within a couple of miles. Yeah. of uh, of the uh, headquarters and with team members unaware of where the tornado shelter is and it being made light of and stand-ups, um, you know, that's a learning opportunity. Or if we look at like, you know, reputational concerns, if we are looking at open AI and <laughs> that crazy, you know, couple of days there, massive reputational concerns. Or if we look at, you know, cyber events, whether it's MGM or Caesars or anything like that. And, there's so many opportunities to look at going, this is why, whether it's emergency management, business resilience, crisis management, disaster recovery, whatever you want label you want to put on this, all of those are important. Those are meant to protect, sustain, and advance organizations during the time of crisis and hopefully advance them forward. You know, every day I wake up, there's another reason on why we should be investing in resilience. Exactly. Uh, so the, the fact that some leaderships are challenged, leadership teams are challenged with it tells me that they have their, it's an ostrich moment for them. Mm-hmm. It's all around them. They just choose to stick their head in the sand and ignore it. I had a feeling you were going to say their head was somewhere. I wasn't sure where you were going. I'm glad you chose sand. Sand uh, is probably the, you know, I, I figure this might be a family channel. Maybe, you know, families are gathering around the, the laptop, uh, streaming this in, you know, around a warm fire, roasting chestnuts and, you know, using kind words is nice. Yeah, no, I, I like it. Uh, I want to talk to you. You talk, you mentioned earlier about um, regulated industries, and you would think that being in a regulated industry would get the attention, if not of the executive, certainly of the board of directors to say, hey, we need to meet these regulations. But what you're sort of implying here, maybe more than implying, is that some organizations will go to great lengths to still just skim by with the bare minimums. Correct. And check the box compliance is some things that organizations prefer to do. You know, not not no judgment on them to each their own. But as we know, check the box compliance simply isn't enough. If we look at highly regulated, you know, fintech industries, whether we're dealing with uh, cryptocurrencies and uh, oh, Binance uh, was the big one where the top of the head of that admitted to uh, money laundering and fraud and has stepped down or Sam Bankman Freed, you know, it, imagine if they had, maybe they did have resilience professionals, but imagine 
if they did, they could have raised potential red flags further because things just stunk from the inside with how monies were transferred. But checking the box from a compliance standpoint doesn't help anyone. Really, it gives you a false sense of security. It's just like not wearing your seatbelt because you have an airbag. Well, it's still going to hurt. And it may even be something that takes your life. Checking the box doesn't do anything for anyone besides give you a false sense of security that you've done things right. It's just like answering your PCI compliance around credit card processing and just guessing. That's check the box compliant. I'm just going to answer it. There's going to be nothing behind that that makes me prove that I'm actually doing what that report is saying. And I'll just wait until I have adversity. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. I'm familiar with an organization that would get resilience and cyber questionnaires from customers. And every once in a while they would pass them by me to say, hey, you know, what do you think about you know these particular answers? And their answers had no bearing on reality. Sure, it got them through the conversation with that particular customer. But if it ever came to light as to what reality actually looked like, they were set, setting themselves up for, for a massive failure. I want to ask you to give some advice to someone who maybe works for an organization that is pushing back at every turn, right? They won't invest in better tools. They won't maybe add people or they won't allow them to go to conferences or whatever it turns out to be. There's just never budget when it comes to resilience. What would you say to a colleague who finds themselves in an organization like that? Can you give them some hope? Can you give them some encouragement? I wish I could. Hmm. But the outlook on those organizations that refuse multiple efforts by resilience professionals to gain some sort of funding, um, you know, if you've tried and you, you know, refined your elevator pitch, made those business cases, found those, you know, incidents and events that would are aligned to your organization and how they could impact you and having your business cases for how resilience could help you potentially thrive through that type of adversity and leadership is still tone deaf. Well, job market's looking great. Yeah. Uh, one has to question whether that's the organization you wish to partner with. Because if they're unwilling to invest in you, then it's pretty much you're a paper tiger. And a paper tiger looks fierce on the outside, but is incapable on the inside. And that's what lack of funding does to a resilience professional. Grant, we can bootstrap things and do paper methods and old three ring binders and go total old school on this. But in our day and age of being so technologically advanced, trying to do this all via paper is an absolute nightmare, especially for a resilience professional who's most likely single-threaded, a single contributor, a team of one. You don't have the bandwidth to do it unless the organization is 10 people or less. One of the things that strikes me too in a situation like that is if I'm the resilience professional and something does go sideways with the organization, and we now have to respond. And let's say it's a really public type of uh, of a disaster or a disruption. And you're known as the resilience professional that worked for XYZ company. <laughs> that's affecting your reputation too. And that's something to think about. Yeah. And, you know, uh, something to think about. Would you hire the resilience professional from Silicon Valley Bank? I wouldn't. I would interview them on the podcast. 
oh, I, I would talk to them all day long. I don't know if I would hire them. Um, I would love to hear their story on how the bank became insolvent, how the run on deposits came about, and why didn't their resiliency plans, were they activated? How Did you ever tabletop this? I imagine this had to be a, a scenario for all type of financial institutions to have a run on deposits. I mean, I, I just, I don't see how that could happen. Well, I see many ways of how it could happen, but I don't understand how organizations and people allow it. And well, what I think it's going to come down to, it's very similar in our uh, cybersecurity, infosec security brethren, is where the CISOs in publicly traded companies are now fiscally liable right. for misinforming boards or not bringing all of those uh, issues to light to the C-suite and to the board. Um, and I'm thinking that's probably going to have to happen in resilience at some point is there's going to have to be some sort of accountability as scary and horrible as that is. I think it's probably what we need to institute positive change and to make sure board of directors, C-suite take this seriously because I know CISOs right now, they're scared and rightfully so. Is my CEO, is the board buying in to me? Do I have the right tech stack and team members to do the work that I need to do, to have the transparency and the forethought to not get sued? You know, when I came into this conversation with you, I was focusing on the fact that the organization wasn't willing to spend any money on resilience. You mentioned it midway through, and it's really resonating with me now. Just a lack of interest. This is really what it is. It's it's a lack of being willing to invest the energy into doing a tabletop exercise or something like that and uh, completely agree with what you said. Um, you got to really look at that as to whether that's an organization you want to work with or not. Way back in COVID, the reason the Resilience Think Tank was originally founded, this was pre-Resilience Think Tank, but people were coming to us in COVID and saying, hey, my organization doesn't see any value in the program. And I reached out to James and Lisa and Milena and some others. And we said, hey, what can we do to help our colleagues who are struggling with this? And we came up with some ideas. But but here we are now, semi-post-COVID, and, and you're still experiencing the same thing. All right, look, I want to change the subject for a minute. Okay, we'll cool. Get to this. You know what's coming. I've been asking all my guests this question. It's getting quite popular. Um, it's music time now, all right? So you're walking to the podium to speak. You get to pick your walk-up music. What song do you pick and why? You know, I've been thinking about this one for a while. Um, it's consumed an immense amount of my time, and I love it. I've listened to hundreds of songs, all sorts of genres, going from classical to like guar, death rock, and everything in between. And I found it. And it's a song that I've been listening to for a while. So similar to the story that you posted on LinkedIn about your journey and adversity, I got to thinking of my own. And what is that theme song that I thought about of it? And the, the song is called Changes by Charles Bradley. Wonderful song. And it, it's it's a sad song, but it's also a great song. It talks about perseverance through hardship emotional pain and grief, hope and optimism, redemption and rebirth and resilience. All things that I believe as resilience professionals, we embody or have experienced. Uh, 
you know, we've had, I've had my perseverance and hardship still do thankful for those opportunities to experience that emotional pain and grief. <laughs> you bet, man, half of mine self-caused I'm the solution to and cause of my own problems. A lot of the times. Awesome. I can totally relate to that. Hope and optimism. Boy, if we don't have hope or optimism, what do we have? All we can do is wallow in into the pain and suffering that we're currently experiencing. Hope and optimism allows us to levitate above that pain and adversity and see that uh, silver lining on that cloud that was really obfuscated because we were so low in our own pain. Um, redemption and rebirth. We all have the ability to reinvent ourselves. I'm a former photographer who used to be a forestry person. Gosh, whoever thought I'd be in resilience? I re reinvented myself because of hope and optimism, because of emotional pain and grief, and because of perseverance through hardship. And that has allowed me to be resilient. And I celebrate that. And that's all of this led to why I celebrate my failures. So Changes by Charles Bradley is an emotional connection for my theme song. It's one that would be really odd to play at a walk up at like a DRJ, you know, being a speaker, people would be looking at me all sorts of weird. Cause it would totally kill the mood in the room, but my golly, <laughs> that's my theme song. Hey, listen, this has been great. I'll get you out of here on this. How can people connect with you? The, the yeah. best way for people to reach. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty sure I'm the only Jason Haas on there. Uh, I, I actively write three times a week, so, uh, it's pretty easy to find me. Uh, I am very active on the LinkedIn platform. Um, which has all of my contact information on there. I encourage you to reach out as you see fit. Let's find a way that we can partner and talk through our opportunities and challenge, celebrate those failures and find a way to move resilience forward. I love that. Shape the future of resilience with us at the uh, Resilience Think Tank. Come join us there too. Be another way to collaborate with you. Jason, thanks for this. I appreciate your time, man. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate everything that uh, you and the Resilience Think Tank have done and continue to do to support us as resilience professionals, I'm better off for it. I'd like to thank Jason Haas for being my guest this week and talking to us about the difficulties that we might face if we work for an organization that doesn't invest in resilience. The Resilient Journey is a Resilience Think Tank production. And speaking of the Resilience Think Tank, we would love to have you join us. Membership is open. Go to resiliencethinktank.com membership to learn more. We have another great guest lined up next week, so join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.